1: Um, Just apologies, I have my whole family home here today with um, the dreaded lurgy, and so if you hear people sneezing and coughing in the background, including myself, I do apologise. Just a word before we begin. This episode talks about the trauma that has been caused by the removal of Aboriginal children from their families. Mm -hmm. We recognise that this could be distressing to some listeners. However, we believe that these conversations need to be had to increase the understanding of the hurt and ongoing harm caused by these policies. To those that were affected, we are sorry. A little bit of important background for this episode. The Stolen Generations refers to a period in Australia's history where Aboriginal children were removed from their families through government policies. This happened from the mid 1800s to the 1970s. In the 1860s, Victoria became the first state to pass laws authorising Aboriginal children to be removed from their parents. Similar policies were later adopted by other states and territories, and finally by the federal government in the 1900s. For about a century, thousands of Aboriginal children were systematically taken from their families, communities and culture. Many never found their way back. These children are known as the Stolen Generation Survivors, or Stolen Children. These children were taken by police from their homes on their way to school. They were placed in more than 480 institutions, adopted or fostered by non-Indigenous people and often subjected to abuse. The children were denied all access to their culture. They were not allowed to speak their language and they were punished if they did. And impacts of this are still being felt today. Currently, it is estimated there are more than 1,700 Stolen Generation survivors all over Australia. In 1995, a national inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families commenced, headed by the President of the Human Rights and Equality Commission, Sir Ronald Wilson. By the end of 1996, nearly 800 submissions had been heard. In May 1997, the Bringing Them Home report was tabled in Parliament, concluding that for individuals, the removal as children and the abuse they experienced at the hands of the authorities or their delegates have permanently scarred their lives. The harm continues in later generations, affecting their children and grandchildren. Former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd delivered an official apology on the 13th of February 2008 expressing regret for past government policies that resulted in the forced removal of Indigenous children from their families. So that's the historical background. This next bit relates to our topic today. In 2021, the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison used the annual Closing the Gap statement to announce the establishment of a $378 million redress scheme for survivors who were forcibly removed as children from their families in Commonwealth-controlled territories, that is, the Australian Capital Territories and Northern Territory before self-government, and Jervis Bay Territory on the New South Wales South Coast. The redress scheme was a recommendation of the Bringing Them Home report, which concluded the policy of assimilation was tantamount to genocide. Eligible applicants will receive a $75,000 one-off payment, recognising the harm suffered, and a further $7,000 for counselling. As a condition, survivors who accept the payment from the Commonwealth Government will have to waive their their right to legal action to seek additional compensation. Mr Morrison told Parliament at that time, we have already confronted it with a national apology, but our deeds must continue to match our words. When asked whether Queensland or Western Australia should introduce schemes, Mr Morrison said it was up to other states to exercise their responsibilities. As of today, Tasmania, South Australia, New South Wales and Victoria have accepted responsibility for the harm caused to stolen generations by establishing redress. In response, Queensland Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Partnerships Craig Crawford said the Palaszczuk government would closely consider the federal government's announcement. He said the Queensland government had recently committed $300 million to its Path to Treaty Fund and $250 million for stolen wage reparations. He said we are committed to reframing the relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and righting the wrongs of the past. Many Aboriginal families believe that the stolen generations did not stop in the 1970s and continued through the 20th century through adoption and child protection fostering. Which brings me to today's guest, Natalie Lewis. Natalie is an Aboriginal and South Sea Islander woman who was adopted in Queensland in 1974 and therefore falls outside both the states currently offering redress and the years that would make her eligible by current criteria in the states that do. That leaves Natalie in somewhat of a no man's land as she seeks recognition of the loss that her adoption caused to her culture, community and family. Thank you so much for joining us today, Natalie. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Jo, for inviting me. Now, I know you prefer Nat. Is it okay if I call you Nat? Yes. Excellent. Look, I thought we'd just jump right in after so much of me talking at the beginning And I thought I might start um, by asking if you'd share your adoption story with us.
0: Yes. So
1: um, these years now. So 1973
0: I was born um, in air and that country I was born on uh, is called Jewry Country. And uh, in 1973 I was born two weeks and then uh, police and family services had come to air to take me from my mother um, and they took me to Townsville. Um, And there I was in a home in Townsville where uh, my mother uh, adopted me. She's German and uh, my father, he was Indian and he was in the army. So... They also had a child after they adopted me, which apparently is something that happens to a lot of people. Once they've adopted, I think they relax and then they can conceive. (laughs) Um, But I think I made it so short there because what had happened was that as I grew up, I always knew I was adopted. Um, We couldn't help it. Mum being the way she looked and Dad the way he looked, you know, uh, they always told me Kids would, uh, even in grade one, I remember telling them uh, I'm adopted and then explained to them what adoption meant. Um, but as I grew up, mum told me stories as I asked about what had actually happened to me being adopted from her point of view. And um, she was only young, she was in her early 20s. Uh, Dad, he had. Just come back from serving in the Vietnam War, and um, she, they just couldn't conceive. So they used to go to and I don't know the name of the home. Um, I wish I've got to get the information, but um, they used to go to a home in Townsville and they used to look after uh, these two boys, you know, boys, David and Charlie. They're pretty uh, famous within our family. And they've got pictures of them. We hear the stories of these two boys. They were never going to be adopted. So they'd take them for the weekends out camping or whatever. And mum had put um, in a form that she always wanted to adopt an Aboriginal boy. And so one day dad was out at Bush. And um, and Bush for um, military means they're going out on exercise. Um, So he was away. For I think a couple. I, I don't know how long he was away for, but Mum was at the home, and she remembers hearing that the police over the speakers that they're bringing in a little Aboriginal girl. Um, well, they. I don't think they even said Aboriginal because she didn't know my culture. They just said they're bringing in a black girl, and so they're bringing it to the home, and she needs to be adopted straight away. And so the ladies, this is from my mother's side of her story of what she told me, that they had asked mum, they know that she wanted to adopt, but would she like to adopt this little one that's coming in? And um, so as soon as I hit the home, uh, mum was there and she saw me. Um, They had conversations and that. I think he paid $5 for me. I mean, that, what? (laughs) she got way more than what her money's worth.
1: (laughs) My dad always told me that I was the best $5 he ever spent and we were adopted at a similar time. So it must have been the going rate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, what a bargain.
0: (laughs) So... um, she had rung my father though when she was there just to let, and they rung over to wherever he was, and she said, "There's this little girl here, and I want to adopt her." And he's saying to mum, "Look, just this is a big decision, Haiti. Let's just wait till I get home, and we all sit and talk about it." And so anyway, he gets off the plane, he's finished exercise, and there she is with this little girl. In her house. That's the sort of person she was. You know, she'd, yeah, I, I hear you, but I'll make my own decisions. Um, and she was such an influence for me, such an independent, beautiful woman and showed me, you know, being an army wife is hard and you're a single mum, basically, that just takes care of the home and everything while your husband, yeah. So um, absolutely love her. She's passed now. Uh it'll be three years now. So I'm um, sorry. I yes, talked to her about her so funny. She really I wouldn't have survived without her um um being my yeah, she was my best friend. She was always there. So back to the story. Sorry, you're gonna have to do a lot of it.
1: <laughs> no, this is wonderful.
0: You're doing great job. <sighs> um yeah, so she two weeks. Um, and then I think it was, she remembers taking me home. I was six weeks then. I think it was two or six weeks, something like that. The timeframes are really different because what had happened is I only just received my paperwork for my adoption. And um, from what mum said, how it went to what it says on paper, and then what I had heard from my birth family. Um, timeframes and everything just doesn't match up in any of them. Um, So they ended up adopting me after a year in 1974. I think it was August 1974. Um, But never knowing what I was because once that I got there, sorry, I have to go back to that because when I mum had seen me, uh, they said something really important that stuck with me um, was that they said to her is that so her family can't find her, uh, you can change her name. So she named me after Natalie Wood because that was her favourite actress back then and um, once she'd changed my name, um, all my identity had been closed off and sealed and that was the medical history, everything and I actually grew up with quite a few issues that um, later on mum had tried to get something so no, I think we went to Jig store when I was about twelve to find out what it um what was some of these issues that we couldn't so that was really hard to. Mum thought I was Torres Strait Islander because of the hair and dark skin, so I started learning about stuff like that through books. Um, But I think one thing I do remember with my story was that um, when mum had adopted me, dad had to keep going out to bush and um, every time he went to exercise, um, I would cry. I'd cry from the moment he left till the and when he came back I was settled again. And this would last all the way till I was seventeen. It was just something that happened all the time to me. That that um I think sentiment issues is yeah. Um I didn't hear much about my adoption. I just knew I was adopted. I grew up in a a German home with a military background. So um had nothing to do with anything about culture so um that was my culture and um it wasn't till i was 17 that's when i met um my family
1: I think you probably answered what my second question was then, um, which was what you were told about your biological family growing up, which you kind of said was not much because your mum, your adoptive mum wasn't able to find out information. But it sounds like it was important to her to try and connect you with culture. Is that is that right?
0: Yeah. I mean, she had no idea. So, you yeah. know, we just took Torres straight because of the curly hair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but she wanted to to help me because her being German, um, she knew and dad being Indian, they were cultured people. So yeah. they knew how important culture is to a person. Yeah. Um, because she identified she always had to go back to Germany to touch the ground and to breathe, to recharge before she came back to Australia again. Yeah. Um and um and to yeah. not have that connection and no who or what you are um, was hard for her because it was hard for me. Yeah. A lot of things um, growing up, there was a lot of things that um, she had to deal with with me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, you said you were 17 when you reunited with your mother and, and siblings. Can you tell us the story of how that happened?
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to talk a bit about the spiritual side of things because it plays a big part with me being taken Um, and I don't talk about it that much as people, you know, growing up I thought people think I'm crazy um, because I didn't understand what it was that was going on with me either. Yeah. So there was always this gift I had now that I'm older I understand it um, but as I was growing up and even though I was taken, I had these special invisible friends that were always visiting me. And um I think the first time I really, really got to meet them was um when I was in Bowen, I used to go walking in the woods and these black men and women would walk beside me, talk in this language I didn't understand, um, but they would lead me to places and sit, and they'd just teach me certain things. But they would also come in dreams as well. And so this would be 1990, yeah, 1990. Um, I'm 17, and it's Christmas time, and... I have this amazing dream that I'm in my bedroom where we're staying. At that time, we are at the Gap, um, Dad's still in the Army, and um, we're at the Gap, and I have this dream that I'm in my bedroom, and I wake up because there's noise happening outside my bedroom, and there's shadows moving. I can see um, under the light in the hallway. So as I open it up, there's these I know it's going to sound weird. There's these werewolves that are wearing suits and they're carrying boxes and they're walking down the hallway. And I'm thinking that I can hear mum and them talking out in the dining room. So I slowly walk out there, but something's distracting me outside the house. So I walk out of the house in this dream and I'm walking down the stairs and there's this parade of cars going By and there's this music playing like at the circus, there's something coming. And so I'm seeing all these cars with big presents, and they were big Cadillacs with roofs off, and they had massive presents in them. And as they're going down the road, I'm standing there at the end of the road and I'm looking and I'm realizing my mum, my mum's coming. And in the last pink Cadillac there, I saw this black woman sitting there looking at me, but her face was all um, blurred so I couldn't see what she looked like. Um, So I I woke up and there was a lot more in that dream that happened. But when I woke up that morning, um, I go out into the dining room where mum is and go make a coffee and she says to me, I got a surprise for you. And I said, okay. And as I turned around, she grabbed a bag and she just threw it out onto the dining table. And it was pictures of all these black faces um, that looked like me. And she said, Natalie, this is your family. They're up in the air. And, oh, yeah. um, and we sat down and I couldn't believe it. I think I was in a bit of shock that I was crying as well because it was so good to see people that looked like me. Um, And so she explained who were the different faces that were in there and uh, do I want to meet them? And I said, yes, because this was about a week before Christmas. And um, she said, well, um, they're down here to meet you and we can arrange for them to come and meet you, come over tomorrow if you like. And I thought, well, this is exciting and I was a bit scared at the same time. But um, I asked mum how she she got all this and um, I just, apparently I'd been asking questions. She just knew my mother had this pathetic way of just knowing when I was at a certain thing or what was happening with me. And I didn't realise a month before she'd actually sent a picture of me um, as a baby and sent it up to air to a friend of hers And they put my birth date on it um, with a question mark and they stuck it on the back of the pub in air (laughs) where all the uncles were. And um, they said, you know, whose baby is this? And the uncles recognised me and they knew exactly who the mother was um, and they went and got her. And um, that's when they got in contact with mum. And so I was about to meet them.
1: (laughs) Wow. Wow. i got goosebumps that is an incredible (laughs) story
0: have you met your birth
1: family I have yeah um so I was 19 it was 1991 when I met my mother and it was another 20 years Mm -hmm. after that before I had the courage to um meet my father yeah yeah
0: it's an incredible experience isn't it isn't it you can't explain that first meeting and all of that energy that Builds up inside you, and you are ugly crying like it is the tears of whatever it is that's coming out. And you hang on to them, and you're just crying, hey, you don't even know where it's come. It's just amazing. So, where did you meet yeah. them? Did they come to your they house? They came to the house, yeah. yeah. Mum got them to come to the house, and I remember um, being in my bedroom. and Mum's going, Oh, Natalie, come out there, <laughs> and I'm Standing there in the mirror, going, "Okay, that you can do this," because I can. I was listening to them through the wall, yeah, and I could hear he, um, a young man, and his name was Bart Bartholomew Palace. He was my older brother, and he was the eldest out of us all. There's twenty three of us. (laughs) Wow. He was the eldest, Bartholomew Palace um And I when you say twenty three, so, do you
1: mean s- siblings or siblings
0: Yeah. Wow. Not out of one mum
1: though. Yeah.
0: Were they all there? Uh, they weren't all there. Were they all there? No, no. There? Uh, thank goodness, no. <laughs> some of them weren't even born yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember hearing his voice, and he saw the picture, a baby picture of me, and then mm-hmm. some other pictures that Mum had out for them. And um, he said, oh, Susan, and um, I look identical to my little sister. Um, And so it was just, uh, and then I could hear a younger woman's voice and then this older woman's voice. So it was my birth mother, Gayleen Mallard, and then Bartholomew, or Barty we all called him, and uh, Catherine. Uh, and she was the oldest sister, so it was Bart, Catherine, and then me. So it's funny, when you're growing up, you have this some sort of, I always had this thing that I wanted to be the middle of five children um, because I was the eldest um, in my adopted family, and it turned out to be that way. It was Bart, Catherine, me, and then Lyle and Susan.
1: Wow.
0: So you're in your bedroom,
1: you're hearing those voices. You yes. come out. What What are you greeted with?
0: Um. Pretty much, Mum said, "This is be, This is your birth, Mum." And I just, yeah, she. We were all just crying, and yeah. we were just crying and shaking. And then she would, just wouldn't let me go. She just held me, yeah. and I could see me, an older version of me, you know, looking at her, and um, then going and meeting Bart and hugging him and just crying. You know, it's. It, I'm seeing it from my point of view, but it just dawned on me that these people, you know, they've been waiting years for this too. Um, yeah. And then Kathy, so we sat down. And I just, I, I just um. Really thought my mum, Heidi, like, wow, to do this on her own because we couldn't do it through anything else. You know that it was that simple, just to especially for first nations we're all related (laughs) you're (laughs) gonna find somebody related to whoever (laughs) so um yeah it was a beautiful and yeah release of everything and questions um and I remember them grabbing my hands and looking at my fingers then turning my hands over and looking at your face and pulling on you and just who do you look like and telling each other, yeah. Yeah.
1: So that was like day one of your meeting. How did that reunion unfold then over the years? Um, So
0: Galen had actually asked mum if I can come and visit the rest of the family up in air. Um, And mum said, yes, um, that'd be good. We'll do it after Christmas. So my big sister, Kathy, stayed with me um, and we spent Christmas together. It was actually really funny because this was the first time we actually realised the difference between cultures and the way that we communicate and how I've been brought up to how um, I, I would have, you know, with in community. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was, we're walking past a baby and mum goes, oh, how cute. And my older sister, Kathy, <laughs> goes, oh, it's so cute I could slap it. <laughs> and mum looked <laughs> horrified at her. And I'm looking at her because we didn't understand what that meant, but <laughs> we thought she wanted to slap the baby. <laughs> and it was a term of endearment that it was just so cute. It was a... <laughs> So, yeah, so after Christmas, Kathy and I head up to uh, air, and we met by family there. and Gaylene, um had taken me around shopping and that. I was seventeen, so, and went to the house. um and that's when all the cousins and that found out I'm coming and that I'm there. And I remember in the house there. Um, I was sort of really nervous at the same time, but I looked out the window and I could hear all these voices. And from the doorway of Gayleen's home to down the stairs, around through the yard, out the fence, there was a big lineup of people that wanted to come meet me. And um, so I, I sort of stood there in the lounge room, and even though they're introducing themselves to me, you know what? you know, hugging and kissing, it was just such a bit of a blur for me at the same time. But it was just it was um I, I think in some way I was really overwhelmed and I was really still young. I didn't really get certain things back then. Um and so I ended up going walking with and meeting some of my family um and walked around the streets with some of my cousins and um just listening to them, the way that they talk, I wasn't accepted straight away. I do remember being called certain names because I spoke different and I looked different. I I acted, walked differently, and so um, I could hear what some of them were saying that I was I was different, and um, I think. Yeah, those relationships, I think some of them have grown over the years, but it took a while. Um, But as I was walking with them, that's when I realised around the street, just listening and talking with them that we came from two different worlds. Like I I grew up in a Western European world and, and military and walking around the streets with my cousins and listening to them. Um, it was a culture shock a real culture shock because um, the way they were communicating talking um, to each other and then just seeing the different dynamics of the environment where people live to what I lived in and where I came from um, was a big culture shock I didn't look down on anyone because my father being um, officer, he always told us that all people are equal and you know better than anybody else. So you look after, you know, um, everyone. Um, so we're equal and he brought me up that way. But definitely it was hard at the beginning to sort of figure out where do I fit in. Um yeah. Unfortunately, it, it what, yeah, there wasn't a good meeting between my mother and I. Our relationship sort of took a turn for the worst in that time. Um, but then I ended up staying with um, my auntie there um, and she was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Um, and they were out, out on a farm, um, which a lot of people would know who they are. Um, and the kids and uncles, they went hunting for me and got me turtle, which was so yummy. The first time I had turtle and kangaroo and snake and they painted the shells for me. And um, it was just so nice to, and seeing, you know, kangaroo hide strung up there and drying out, snake, yeah. um, experiencing this and that they went and did that for me you know because I didn't even realize but I still hadn't sort of realized what our culture was and um, this is what we do.
1: (laughs) And you discovered that you were um, part of a famous Queensland football family didn't you? I did
0: I did but you know and wow yeah So being young um, I didn't know then but it wasn't till later on that I realized that being a palace was actually a um a pretty famous name and there's not many i think there's only one palace family in queensland wow. so um yeah uh, uh, gordon palace and my my grandfather his grandfather their brother um and so it was pretty good it, it yeah to uh sort of know that um he's that's pretty cool he <laughs> is. But it's it's funny because as I was growing up, because my last I adopted last name's Lewis. And I used to tell people that still that because uh, I love the king. I loved Wally. And so I used to tell them that he was my uncle. <laughs> uncle Wally Lewis. But then when I hear about um, yeah,
1: say at least it, they're on the same different. side. Ah uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah one of the things that struck me listening to your story Nat is um how's it adopted people when we meet our biological family and and I felt the same as so I think I heard you expressing is that we're we're constantly thinking about how our biological family views us and sees our differences and how they're we're very hypersensitive to how they're reacting to us um so I guess I wanted to turn that around and just ask you, what did you miss out on by not growing up with your Aboriginal family?
0: Yeah. Um, and it's still a thing today. Yeah. Um, it's the culture, the culture um, and community. Um, some family members still don't even know AAC. And um it's that connection of knowing everybody and who's who. Um, and I think the thing is almost like I think of it as, you know, when birds fall out of nests and a human being touches it, it's almost like it's rejected by the family. It almost it feels like that, that there's only certain people that do accept you and even if they do, they still don't understand um, well they wouldn't understand how you feel but there's always that gap of not fully being a part of the family and I think that saddens me is that um, I got to miss out on having sisters I got to miss out on growing up with my brothers and cousins and being, having that really close you know years and even though it was just seventeen, now that I'm near fifty, um, it matters even now, because seventeen years for people in family is still not really you've been gone for seventeen years, so you're still not connected within community that way. and um to know my great grandparents and to hear the history after I had come back of what our people as First Nations people had gone through. Um, I would have loved to have that connection, you know, um, to know my grandparents to hear those stories before they had passed of what they knew, you know, when the great, great parents, because it's something that I'm struggling to find now. that history and what um, I need to keep for my culture so that I can teach it with my children um, and they keep that connection. It's very important.
1: Mm. I, um, I often think um, from my own experience, I sometimes feel like an imposter when I'm trying to connect with my biological family's culture um in history and you know where they came from and that kind of thing and I feel like an imposter when I'm trying to do it with my adoptive family too because it's not actually my history it's theirs is there some of of that that runs through
0: yeah yeah Yeah. you don't fit in one you don't fit in the other and I think I had to come to this thing that you're uniquely you Mm -hmm. just accept you for you because. I've got this thing that I believe, even though it's painful, and it and it shouldn't have happened um, the way it happened. But then there, um, you look at what is it that we can do because we see both sides of the fence when we yeah. when we're taken. If we can get through the trauma and be able to keep moving forward, um, that we have to accept us for just who we are because neither, neither side of the family is going to understand or be, we feel, I feel, that I'm not fully connected with either because one, will, one side will let you know and, you know, sort of remind you that you're not really our family because you're not born. <laughs> yeah. And the other side is, well, you know, you weren't you you know, you haven't got that distance you were taken. Yeah. yeah, it's that thing. Yeah, you always have that. It's a heaviness. Um, but I think this is where it's great to connect with others that have experienced it too because we both, we all feel that loneliness, that there's something in our hearts that's just heavy. And um, I think that's what gives us the empathy and the compassion and understanding for others that are lost or that need, that extra bit of love, um, and taking care of others too, because we know what it feels like. Mm. Yeah.
1: So, um, Nat, why do you consider yourself part of the Stolen Generation? Mm. I
0: think first, um, as i definitely, you know, acknowledging, and I should have done this at the beginning, um, our elders and all of those ancestors that came and um and our old people before us. Um what they had gone through, even worse than what I have on and the ones that have come after. Um, being taken, being taken, and your identity. Script of you not being able to know your culture or speak your language um, and being I mean what better way to uh, stimulate somebody than put her in a European home and a military home you know um that's why and and it and it definitely didn't as you said it before it didn't stop at 1970, and it pretty much continues today. Um, there's fancy wording in that, and where are well, your Uncle, it's a system that works for them. And um, can our people are continually not just First Nations, but um, everyone you know is still continually being hurt by it. It's almost like a law of its so. own, but stolen generation, yeah, taken from your family, and your family that had kinship, I had aunties that actually put their hand up, that were working and married to be able to take care of me and for the police and the docs back then, I think they called it, um, yeah, to just take me away and not even think of kinship um, when they were able to take care of me. That's why.
1: No, it no. is a hard
0: thing because I don't think also the government sees something different between stolen generation and adoption. And forced adoption, for me, is still stolen generation. Uh, no matter what nationality you are, yeah. You know, it's one thing I had learned about, which over the years with absolutely the First Nations culture and community and Torres Strait, was that. Um, you may be born from one mother, but all the aunties and that, you've got all those mothers taking care of you. But it's, it's such a beautiful, um, it's complex, but it isn't, the culture, um, and it's communal. It's, everyone takes care of everyone. Um, there were certain things and laws that were preventative, uh, and, the, and the law is for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. I don't know much of Torres Strait, so I can't really talk much on that. But for my my um, culture, it's very much was taking care of everyone, um, and also it wasn't a reactive law that if something happened, it would then implement things in place, that so that they could prevent certain things. It already was a preventative. It already had things. I mean, when you're looking at tens of thousands of of um, years they've and they've governed that place. there's something to learn about them, <laughs> when they're looking after so many people, that um, I, I feel that the, the, for what is happening and what this government allows, um, what they do to their people, when they're supposed to be looking after them, you know. Um, need to sit down have a listen how does first nation culture and more work with um with the children and how do they do that with community it's about caring it's about community it's not about separating and dividing and causing more damage um, and and it would be good there are some amazing people out there that does these amazing programs for and i could and i'll send them to you. Yeah, um, we can put a link up. About helping, yeah, for sure, um, about helping understand how our law, and, and it is its law. Well, I say it's law, but, I mean, that's just so the wider community understands what we live by. Um, it always governs us, and that's by listening to our creator. We call him Yabu in my language, up in Jirug, uh Beragaba language, um, Westerners calling God. It's all one, um, and that's the law, um, taking care of people, our family, our community, our land, and our animals. Um, because if you separate any one person, that's so damaging. We already have them. In law. You can't do that to somebody. Um, take them away from where they belong and their people and their home. yeah. Oh, yeah. So now, what does the future hold for you? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually working on a few things at the moment um, that are really exciting and I can't really say too much, but um, it definitely is a part of this story, of my story, um, and uh, working with um, and working within early learning and um, primary school. I'm just sharing my story, but in a unique way um, where the children are actually going to love it and understand it. Um, I think that's the only way I can do it is just by sharing. I think I've I've stood so many times in front of young children in schools or in colleges and unis and spoken about my story, but kids are really honest when it comes to um, the boredom factor. And, I mean, I've seen so many... (laughs) Roll back in their heads, or they'll just turn around and start playing. <laughs> I think I really have to make this more interesting. They really don't like an old, another old lady standing there telling a story. Boring. <laughs> so with my, I'm actually making it a play, and and the character, because um, my father's side, he's cubby cubby, so um, I'm using that language. Um and so uh the main character's name's Gabu and Gabu means boy. Um and so that's I think that's a bit of bachelor yeah, language as well mixed in with ours. Um and so Gabu will be traveling around Queensland and that and um sharing his story just like like my story. I think if I was younger, I would have wanted I would have loved to see something like that. Um, where a little black kid gets adopted into another, you know, and how do they go about living life? So I just want to make it um, better and easier for the future generation, Um and maybe a little bit more help um, there too to help them come through because they should be running in their destiny by now. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and connecting with story, I think, is one of the ways that we change people's perception. And through story, you can reach people in a way you never can by a report or a speech or, you know, it's it's yeah. finding that connection where you actually reach people in the heart, I think, and change yeah. the way they think. Yeah, yeah. I hope yeah. when that all comes out, you um, send us all your links and keep in touch so that we can keep everyone um, up to date with what you're doing <laughs> and where they might even be able to see this or where their kids can see it.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. That would be great. Yes. Um, you know, my mum always said to me, because growing up was always hard, and she always said to me that um, when I came back, especially there was hard times where there was racism, mm-hmm. and um, I'd come back home crying. And she said to me, twice she said this to me, and it helped me for now as an adult too is that, Natalie, no matter what happens when you walk in unfortunately, people are going to see your black skin. And so it's up to you To when you walk in that room, you put a big smile on your face and you put your hand out and you make them feel comfortable with you and get to know them and for them to get to know you and she's story. And she said that's how you're going to help other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Natalie, are there any thoughts that you'd like to leave us with today?
0: I I do, and it's probably um, this is something quite personal for me, but also helps me keep going, um, especially with my culture. I um, I have this amazing verse uh, from the Bible that helps me as well, and I link a lot of my theology up with our cultural spirituality. Um, And it's Mark 12, and it's love your Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that's how we live in our culture as well, that when you're feeling doubt and when you can't keep moving forward and your head is all messed up, is that always look up into the stars in the sky and know that there's someone taking care of you. He's got you. And just to keep moving forward, because you're here for a reason and just have faith that you can keep moving forward so that you can share your story and help
1: someone. That's very wise words. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us today. There's. Um, I've got a lot of takeaways from things you said and that I'm going to be thinking about them all day. I know I am. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story with us today, Nat. You're
0: welcome. Thank you, Jo. It was
1: lovely meeting you. And we'll be putting up some relevant links on the podcast notes page, and I just wanted to shout out and say thank you to our FAST team leader, Caroline Slade, for helping me put this episode together, or pretty much really putting this episode together, um, and for linking me with Nat so that we could share her story today. And um, I know there's going to be many people who'll benefit from hearing this episode, and if you... um, are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander and um, you have been adopted, please do contact our um, FAST team at at Jigsaw and and we'll certainly be able to support you and and help you as you're exploring all of these issues and, and maybe trying to find your biological family and uh, meanwhile do you have a story that you'd like to share with us if you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast jump onto the podcast main page of the jigsaw queensland website and complete the prospective guest form there and note that adopt perspective adopt perspective sorry can be listened to by people all over the world bye for now thanks for listening to the adopt perspective podcast if you'd like to find out more go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 21 03 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 666. If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.